1: from the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, scores of movies and TV series are canceling production. So, what happens to the thousands of crew members who are now unemployed? Then, M. Ward's grandfather was an immigrant from Mexico. The singer's new album is called Migration Stories.
2: Because I don't have any uh, photos or journals or anything like this from my grandfather i feel like music can help fill in some of those
1: blanks and dance music with a message from the la band french vanilla that's today on the frame we'll be right back
0: imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you
1: already love to eat shop and play Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Around the globe, Hollywood is shutting down the production of scores of movies and TV series, and that means a huge number of crew members are suddenly unemployed. Many of those who lost their jobs are assistants in writers' rooms, studios, and agencies who might not qualify for pay or health benefits during a shutdown. Liz Alper is a TV writer and a former assistant. She's the creator of Pay Up Hollywood, and I asked her how her organization started.
0: Pay Up Hollywood is an organization uh, that started in response to a lot of the system abuses and low wages that were going on in the entertainment industry. And our goal is to shine a light on some of the abuses and uh, outdated practices that have been going on and do whatever we can to fix it and bring assistants and other support staff up to a living wage while also eradicating uh, the abuses that are still going on in the workplace.
1: So let's talk about what's going on in the workplace right now. More than 70 TV and film shoots so far have shut down. But when you add it all together, we're probably looking at thousands of people below the line who are suddenly out of work. Do you think that's about right?
0: Yeah. If And I think that number is rising every day.
1: So some of those people might be full-time studio employees. They might be casting directors or maybe somebody who works in post-production. But I'm mean, going to have to assume the majority are freelancers. They go from show to show, kind of the backbone of Hollywood's gig economy. How might that latter group be at a disadvantage if they're laid off?
0: Well, especially for the freelancers who are not part of any of the unions, these are people who don't have any sort of uh, cushion to fall back on. Often they're living hand-to-mouth. Often they're being paid lower than anyone else on the crew, and they are paying for their own health insurance. It's not provided through a union. They're the ones who, when stuff like this happens, they don't really have anywhere else to turn. There are also 1099 employees uh, who Don't get to pay into unemployment insurance. And so they don't receive unemployment benefits when, you know, major shutdowns like this happen, even though it's never really happened before. Uh, In the event that a movie is canceled or a TV show ends, what they have in their bank account is all that they have to survive on until their next gig.
1: I have read that some of the things that have been considered are paying people Compensation for a couple of weeks, but based on a 40 hour work week. But there's almost no such thing as a 40 hour work week during production. A lot of the compensation is tied to overtime when people are working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. So that extra pay, which can be huge, if that goes away, even if you're getting a paycheck for a couple of weeks, it would be a fraction of what you might typically take home, correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. And honestly, most people who work in production uh, are given 60-hour work week guarantees. So by saying that we will pay you for a 40-hour work week, you are taking away 20 guaranteed hours. If you were making say minimum wage of $15 an hour, that's about an additional $300 a week that you're losing. And that's a huge difference. That's the difference between being able to pay your rent, pay your bills, maybe, you know, buy your kids food, If that money goes away, you have nowhere else to turn. And especially in a situation like what we're facing now, where everything's uncertain, no one knows when production's going to be coming back, you're essentially digging a financial hole and you don't know when you can stop.
1: We're talking with Liz Alper from Pay Up Hollywood about unemployment in Hollywood. Your organization has helped start a crowdfunding campaign. What kind of people do you think are most in need of help?
0: I, you know, honestly, I think across the board, there are just people in need of help. It's it's the workers, it's the production folk. We're focusing on um, the support staff because that's who our organization is fighting for. But beyond the support staff, there are there are crew members, there are studio assistants, there are office workers who have been laid off without pay. So it's really everybody. And even though we started this. GoFundMe, we're still urging the studios and the employees in the entertainment industry to continue compensating all their employees because right now the employees are the ones that need to be taken care of and the businesses profit because of the hard work of their people. So right now they need to be stepping up and offering financial protection and support throughout this time of uncertainty.
1: It also feels like this is a moment Where income disparity in Hollywood and probably around the world could be brought into much sharper focus. So, we have studio heads and CEOs who make tens of millions of dollars. Disney's Bob Iger made nearly 1,500 times what the average Disney employee makes. And Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon and the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, worth $100 billion, has been asking its staff to donate their time off for others who might be sick. And I'm wondering, If we're to step back, might this be a conversation that could follow after this is all over?
0: You know, this is a conversation that's been had for years. So it's not that these conversations haven't happened. It's that the world hasn't taken notice yet. And so what I think needs to happen is for the public at large to understand that we are facing a severe income disparity where the people at the bottom tend to pay the most in situations like this and who are at the most at risk. And yet their situations never change. They're, they're never given an ounce of relief. Instead, they're told that they simply have to work harder to dig themselves out of these financial debts that they've accrued.
1: Liz Alper is a writer and the creator of Pay Up Hollywood. Liz, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
0: Thank you so much, John.
1: As of this taping, the GoFundMe donations to the Relief Fund for Hollywood support staff totaled about $100,000. A group of writers and showrunners, including John August, Craig Mazin, and Damon Lindelof, have pledged to match donations today up to $150,000. Coming up on The Frame, M. Ward's grandfather immigrated from Mexico. The singer's new album is called Migration Stories. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. M. Ward has had a prolific career as a songwriter. He's a member of Monsters of Folk along with Connor Oberst. He's one half of She and Him with Zoe Deschanel. And in his spare time, he's released almost a dozen albums as a solo artist. His latest project is called Migration Stories. It was inspired in part by headlines from the past year about immigration, but the remainder came from learning about his own ancestry. M. Ward was supposed to perform at South by Southwest this year before it was canceled. When we Skyped recently, I asked him about what kinds of conversations he's had with his team about releasing an album in such uncertain times.
2: Well, I just heard the word consumer confidence for the first time, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I think if people aren't comfortable going to shows, you know, whether or not it's safe or unsafe, if, uh, if they're not feeling comfortable going out of their houses, uh, that's completely out of our control. So it's something I've never, ever had to deal with. I'm, I'm sure it's just like everyone else. We're learning as we go how, how to handle this.
1: When you have a new album coming out, touring is so much of the equation in terms of people hearing what you've got new. How much is touring important to you in terms of just getting people plugged into your music? Uh,
2: ever since I started making music, you know, the other half of the equation of recording is touring and performing the songs live for people. As of uh just a week or two ago uh everything's different. We're now thinking of other ways to um perform, but it might have to do with uh you know watching your computer screen and um I'm happy that I can re- rely on people who've um been through similar things but for me it's all it's all brand new
1: I want to say it instantly reminds me of some of the themes you're exploring in migration stories, that coronavirus doesn't respect borders. It doesn't respect nationalities, religions. It is an equal opportunity infector. And I'm wondering, as you're thinking about what's happening in the world, kind of on the pandemic level and what you're trying to address as an artist on your album, do you see them kind of overlapping about borders and who we are and how we relate to one another?
2: Part of the original idea for the record was to uh, see if there is a, a spiritual side of, of migration. And um, if there is one, I think music in some way can help uh, illustrate the movement. And um, it's hard to put into words exactly, but um, as I was making this record, I was learning about my grandfather's migration from Mexico uh, to California via El Paso and New Mexico and Arizona. And um, simultaneously, I'm reading all these articles about um, migration. And um, something I was surprised by when I was traveling to Europe is that I was having the same conversations and reading the same kind of articles and realizing that this is a global uh, movement. And um, when I was talking to my family about my own grandfather's story, it seemed to uh, plug right in. And um, because I don't have any uh, photos or journals or anything like this from my grandfather, I feel like music can help fill in some of those blanks.
1: It almost sounds like you approach the making of this album the way a documentary filmmaker might put together a movie that you're collecting bits and pieces of stories here and there, and then kind of weaving them together into a coherent whole. Have you ever gone about putting together an album that way? Um, I'm not sure I've ever tried to put
2: an album, exactly an album that way, but I'm definitely, you know, inspired by documentaries. And I love how um, it doesn't really matter how many millions of people um, you're trying to tell the story of when it comes to a filmmaker or, for me, a songwriter The most I can do is deal with one character's story or two characters and um, try to dig as deeply as I can into that story.
1: When people are going through, say, a really bad breakup, they can find great solace in a really good breakup song. And I'm wondering if the same might be true if people are wrestling with understanding of migration or borders or immigrants do you think it can work the same as it does with a breakup song
2: i think so Uh, i know that that's happened to me so many times especially with older music it has a humanizing effect an equalizing effect and um the fact that they are us and we are them is i think one of the you know oldest stories in music and art and um now it would be a very good time to tell that story.
1: We're talking with M. Ward about his new album, Migration Stories. I want to play a song from the album. This one is called Unreal City.
2: And in a dream I hitched a helicopter ride I saw the big one strike And the forest slide
1: Kind of snappy, kind of happy, and it's about earthquakes and tidal waves. Uh, And you wrote this, obviously, well before the recent pandemic. What were you thinking about when you put together Unreal City?
2: Uh, Years of articles in in the LA Times about uh, the earthquake. Also, uh, articles about migration and um, the fascination of being in in a new city. And, um, yeah, that's a little bit of where the song comes from.
1: Can you imagine your grandfather who crossed into the United States from Mexico listening to this album in some kind of parallel universe and what might have been going through his mind as he's making that journey and what your music might be saying about people like him who made that journey?
2: I I do think about that. Uh, There is one cover song on the record called uh, Along the Santa Fe Trail uh, that I had him uh, more specifically in mind. It's a song from um, the era of when he did make these big life changes. And um, 1930s, 1940s, it was somewhat popular. I don't think it was ever a big hit, but uh, it uh, was definitely inspiring for the the main idea of the record, which is to find a different point of view uh, from what we're um, reading in the newspapers every day. And I think that it's a beautiful point of view when it comes across in, in a song like uh, Along the Santa Fe Trail. Beside you I am riding every hill and dale While shadows hide you Just like a pretty purple veil Thereby hangs a tail
1: what did you imagine kind of visually as you were listening to the lyrics that were written by Al Dubin and Hugh Williams in this song?
2: I feel like there's a, a great moment of discovery where um, this traveler is realizing their place and also realizing that this um, person that they're with is uh, their future.
1: That the journey is the destination in a way? Maybe.
2: Yeah, maybe. Um, but it's it definitely seems like some... Transformation is happening in the song, uh, not just in this um, beautiful surroundings that he's in, but he's discovering this person that he's with.
1: You wrote something on Instagram that struck me, and that is this. The genius production idea was this. No production. A song will live or die on its own merit. And what will happen is the listener will feel like they are witnessing the invention process instead of the end of the polishing one. I want to hear a little bit more about that, about the idea that you can hone something so close that it loses its original shape and design.
2: Yeah, I was I was trying to write a few words uh, about the passing of Daniel Johnston, um, whose cassette tapes made a really big influence on me.
3: Listen up and I'll tell a story.
2: It's somehow related really closely to me to the music of Robert Johnson, whose music I was discovering at the same time. I got a kind of woman, this way. A directness that was impossible to find on the radio. And um, I, kind of I feel like relying on the things that uh, you have at hand can be much more useful than what's outside of your grasp.
1: I want to ask you more about Daniel Johnson. He, I think, is considered kind of an outsider, a folk artist. He was hugely influential to people like Kurt Cobain and Tom Waits. And he wasn't a guy who a lot of people heard of, and he wasn't a guy who sold a lot of albums. But he sung from his heart, and it meant something to him. And it wasn't, I guess, that important that he was, you know, well-known. How do you balance the idea of being authentic With the idea of like you got to make a living and you got to sell records and people have to listen to what you are performing and creating,
2: it's a good question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the idea of authenticity is to me, I guess you can boil it down to how close is the final product to the inspiration and um, the music of Robert Johnson and Daniel Johnston. You almost feel like they're one in the same as opposed to um, hiring uh, producers and multiple percussionists and um, managers to get from point A to point B.
1: When I think of everything that's happened about public events, just looking at sports, basketball, hockey, soccer, now baseball canceled. Athletes, like it's like a shark. They got to swim or they die. They got to play or they don't know what to do. What is it like for... A musician who maybe you like touring, maybe you don't, but you, I suspect, like playing, how do you make sure that you don't stagnate and that you can continue to do what you want to do, even if there's not a venue or means to do it publicly right now?
2: Well, I'm lucky, very lucky to have created healthy habits back in high school, which means spending a couple hours a day with the guitar alone in my room. Uh, or in my studio so the the writing process has always been me myself and i and there's going to be a lot more uh, me myself and i over the next couple of weeks
1: Ward's new album is called migration stories it drops on april 3rd matt thanks so much for coming on the show great to talk to you i love the show up next on the frame a post-punk dance party with the band french vanilla Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn, The L.A. post-punk band French Vanilla makes dance music with a message. With song titles like Bromo Sapien, it's clear that the band has a sense of humor, but the underlying themes in their lyrics of queer identity and gender bias couldn't feel more urgent. The Frame contributor Allison Wolfe spoke with bandmates Sally Spitz, Daniel Troutfield, and Allie Day about the band's most recent album, How Am I Not Myself?
3: My name is Sally Spitz, and I sing, and I write for French Vanilla. There's a window, there's a chance.
4: There's a window, there's a
5: chance. My name is Daniel Schoutfield, and I play bass and saxophone.
4: My name is Allie Day, and in French Vanilla, I play guitar and bass. Both of them. We've been definitely evolving as musicians. The first album we made those songs, some of us having never played instruments before, essentially.
3: Carrie. For the song Carrie. A shy girl doesn't make friends easily. That song is a reference to the film starring Sissy Spacek based on the Stephen King novel Carrie. Gosh, I mean, Carrie. I was very struck by that storyline because I had experienced abuse, hazing when I was in high school, and I have these very vivid memories of like, locker room and the auditorium and these venues that are in the film that are so quintessentially high
4: school. I feel like that's the most divisive song we have. When we like open for like, maybe like an all-male band and it's their crowd, they'll just be staring at us like, what? Woman now, Carrie.
3: Yeah, there's just nothing quite like looking out, pouring your heart out and then seeing some teenage guy eyes like glazed donuts looking back at you. Right, you yeah, because we' pretty going on in pretty
4: there. explicitly talk about menstruation and that doesn't play that well to an all male audience. Yeah, I mean, they don't have to encounter death monthly.
5: Me and Allie grew up in Lompoc, California. We went went to
4: high school together.
5: And to prom together. And I think to a homecoming together, too. Just prom, babe. But we're not dating because (laughs) I am gay.
4: We went as friends. (laughs) Yeah. Although he was not out to me, so.
5: I mean, what is the definition of a friend? What's the definition of dating?
4: Okay, so we were dating? Maybe we were dating. Is that what you're telling me?
5: We went went to homecoming. (laughs) Okay, so. No, we went to prom. (laughs) I was probably the biggest band nerd in my school. I was the drum major of the marching band, which included me having to dress up as a Jedi at high school football games. Many of my early memories are on the band bus. Friendly Fire is my favorite song. Those are some of my favorite lyrics, because I think it's like my echo from the speakers I, I hear a rumble in Through the bleachers. Bleachers remind me of marching band because we used to like perform on the field at football game shows, and you would kind of <laughs> hear ostensibly my saxophone reverberating and coming back to you on the field.
4: This is Ali. Growing up, I was never really encouraged to play music. My brother always played guitar. And I actually remember saying to him one time, I hope that you like become a rock star one day. Like It somehow never even occurred to me that I could be the one playing music until I was much older. Um, and it wasn't really until college when I had friends like Sally over here that I started having my own dreams of starting a band.
3: Our new album is called How Am I Not Myself? This album, it had in large part to do with like a queer like sexual awakening that was pretty delayed. You, I you know, it had a lot inside that I hadn't really explored or considered. It's kinda me, me. The album and writing like lesbian songs is stepping out of the expectation and the norm for me, and it was very exciting and liberating.
5: Other bands were like, oh my God, when you go on tour, you guys are going to kill each other. And then when we went on tour, we get along so well. It's just a pleasure. I mean,
4: we were friends first, bandmates second, and future frenemies.
3: <laughs> Even more future business partners.
4: <laughs> Even more future buried
1: next to each other.
3: <laughs>
1: and that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Stay safe and healthy. We're back here tomorrow at the Moon Broadcast Center. The
4: Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people.
5: So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody.
4: It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old.
5: This is a historic thing coming.
4: And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water maker. wherever you get podcasts.